I'm Sean. And I'm Eds. And uh, today we're doing some more baseball. We're doing it remotely again. Because uh, there's a pandemic going on. And, uh, well, I guess normally we could sit rather distance across from each other in uh, the stewed. But... Uh, yeah, well, we've, we've, uh, we have a small, a small bubble. A small bubble of, uh, of select uh, of people. Uh, keeping it small yeah, uh, this but- whole time. You've been... You've been one of my one of my guys, but we've we've been uh, social distance for the most part every time we see each other. Yeah, and and it should be noted restrictions got tighter the, since the last time we saw each other in person. So, uh, well, cases got higher, and it's it's uh, hopefully by the time that this episode's airing, we'll be back in a better direction. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, anyway, so uh, on a more positive note, you can follow us on Twitter <laughs> at Doing Baseball. If that's more positive note, I know Twitter can sometimes <laughs> be a wasteland. But anyway, on a more positive note, where you can see frilly pictures and whatnot, uh, follow us on Instagram at Doing Baseball. And of course, uh, you know you've you've obviously found us on one of the platforms, whether it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts. But uh, of course, thank you for listening, and I want to. We would like to encourage you to tell your friends to uh, find us on whatever platform they listen to. So, uh, yeah, this is our bi-weekly baseball history podcast. And uh, this week, Sean has a story from baseball history for me, which I don't know what it is. So, Sean. Uh, I'm super excited. Super excited. Uh, this is this is a subject that we definitely, definitely uh we're going to eventually cover somebody was going to cover this subject. Uh, and I just happened, I just happened to be the one to to do it. This was kind of the same, uh, feeling that we had about Charles Finley and you were the first one to get to him too. So, uh, maybe, maybe I'll get the, the next topic that we agree on. Who knows? Well, I mean, it's just an obvious one. I'm sorry, I'm just like going, I realize that there's a book involved and I haven't grabbed it yet, so I had to go into the other room to grab a book. Um, coming back here. Uh, it's, it's, it's just one, one of the best uh, movies in baseball history uh, is about this subject. That's why I say it's so obvious to, to both of us uh, and to anybody listening. If you, Obviously, if you're listening, you're a big baseball fan. I have no doubt you've, you've seen this movie. Uh, but there's so much more history to it than than just a stupid movie. Uh, it's a good movie. This is your second movie episode. It's not a movie episode. I at first I thought about it being a movie episode. It's not a movie episode. Uh, but I'm happy to announce this is actually part one of a two part episode. Oh. Uh, not sure how we're gonna do this, but I think we're gonna be bringing you a bonus episode with part two of this once I get my shit together and get it all written up. Uh, but I got part one ready to go. Uh, you ready for this, Edzie? Yeah, I'm ex- I'm excited, especially now. This is our second two-part uh, episode, so yeah, let's do uh, this. Eventually, we're gonna have like a three or four-parter, but let's go. Uh, no doubt. Um, World War II had been in full swing for over two years. 
America had remained neutral, uh, but it did support uh, specifically Britain and a few other allies. Uh, many Americans saw uh, the war as a European and Asian issue and not of their concern. Right, right. No, no boots on the ground in the early days, as they say. No, no, exactly. Uh, so as the war raged on, the U.S. continues uh, with life as usual. 1941 was as memorable a year uh, as ever for Major League Baseball. Joe DiMaggio hit safely in 56 straight games. Ted Williams hit 406. And the Yankees took down the Dodgers in five games to win the World Series. But on December 7th, 1941, everything changed. A day with Empire... live in infamy. Exactly. Uh, the old FDR speech. So the Empire of Japan attacks Pearl Harbor in the Hawaiian Islands, and the U.S. declares war on Japan and in turn Nazi Germany. With the attack, a nationalistic fever, or fervor, sorry, sweeps through the United States, and baseball is, of course, at the forefront. By December 9th, 1941, just two days later, 23-year-old star pitcher Bob Feller, who had heard of the attack on his way to negotiate a new contract, decides to join the Navy instead. So Bob Feller was on his way to Chicago to meet with the executives from Cleveland to negotiate a contract. Right. And then he hears about the Pearl Harbor attack and he joins the Navy instead of negotiating a new contract. Right. And, and he's just a baby, right? He's just a, a young guy. He's 23. He's 23. Okay. So yeah, he was, okay. he was a star, but he was pretty fresh, right? But he, he, okay. So he came into the league. He'd already been kind of an established player oh, yeah. at that time. So he came in young. That's right. Bob Feller yeah. was my grandfather's favorite player. So I kind of know a little bit about Bob Feller. Yeah. I hear he's a dick. Uh, he's dead now, but <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I think it was him. But either way, that's a story for another day. Um, <laughs> he liked his pitching anyway. Like, you yeah, know. he was a good pitcher, great pitcher, <laughs> Hall of Fame pitcher. Young men across the country began signing up for the war, including hundreds of ball players, both from the major and minor leagues. It looked as though baseball would come to a halt. It would not look good from a PR standpoint to have so many young, fit men committing to fighting on the baseball field while so many others were fighting for their freedom. Professional baseball sought direct guidance from President Roosevelt, and the MLB commissioner, Kennesaw Landis, wrote to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, uh, uh, and on January 15th, Roosevelt responded. He gave them the go-ahead to play baseball saying, I honestly feel that it would be best for the country to keep baseball going. And added that he would like to see more night games so that factory workers could attend the games. So that's a little caveat that he had. He was like, yeah, you could just play at night too. That'd be fun. He was a little ahead of his time. A little bit ahead of his time. Uh, baseball went ahead, uh, but after the 1942 season, it seemed... Uh, that most of the stars followed in the footsteps of Feller and joined the service. Even with a lack of star power, baseball became more popular. Uh, but by the fall of 1942, many minor league baseball leagues had been canceled due to the lack of men. 
Cubs owner Philip K. Wrigley was concerned that the major leagues would be suspended or affected by a shortage of men and disinterest and disinterest of from the fans due to the lack of stars. So we remember, like at this point, after Feller signs up right away, most of the stars still play in 1942. But by 1943, like Ted Williams signed up then at that point after the 42 season, I believe uh, Joe DiMaggio or. Uh, I don't know. But either way, most of the stars have signed up. So 1943, it's not looking that good for Major League Baseball. Uh, so in a meeting between Wrigley, Branch Rickey, and Warren Giles of the Cincinnati Reds, women's softball came up. And they realized over one million women played softball, and these games actually did attract fans. Okay. I bet you know where this is going now. I do. I do. The trio went to some of the games and uh, they saw uh, and they liked what they saw on the field and in the stands. The fans were actually attentive and the play was pretty darn good. The play on the field was quality. The fans were into it. Uh, so the group came up with the idea. Why don't we start a pro girls softball league and market it to major league markets? Well, at least Wrigley thought they should market it to major league markets. Okay. Uh, so Wrigley and a group of Midwestern businessmen began to organize a not-for-profit league. The board consisted of Wrigley, Dodgers president and GM Branch Rickey, Cubs attorney Paul V. Harper, and Ken Sells, who was named president of the league. Women's softball was much more common at the time than hardball, but the group wanted to create a game that combined the two sports. I guess you could call them separate sports. They're kind of the same, but either way, there's a... Yeah, so they were like, why don't we take women's softball and Major League Baseball and we kind of make a combo of the two, a hybrid, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. With, with that... Going, you know, going with kind of a, a weird notion that it'll be some kind of novelty for women to play hardball instead of softball. Yeah, which is, uh, a, li- a little bit. And so yeah, you'll see where I mean, it goes. obviously with, that's not like the main selling point, but like it, it, you can kind of... I kind of get that sense from from uh, you know, it, it 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 just seems that they, I don't know, it's hard it's hard to explain. It just seems like they they think can't that imagine it's weird. women playing hardball, right? Yeah, yeah. No, they're idiots. Uh, <laughs> but they either way, they're like, so we'll make this pro softball league. That's what we're gonna do. So the All American Girls Softball League emerged. The name would constantly change throughout its history, though. In fact, through the first season, it would be changed to the All-American Girls Baseball League. Then a few months later, it would be changed to the All-American Girls Professional Ball League. So it went from softball to baseball to ball. Like, just figure it out. <laughs> like, what are you doing? They, they they do slowly. This is why this is in two parts because they do, but but pretty slowly. Um, the, so this idea was actually quite provocative at the time. Women had been playing sports recreationally and even competitive competitively dating back years. Like there was a, there was history of women's baseball before the 1940s. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was you know there was teams back in the 18. 18- 60s and 70s even that you can trace back that had women or, or that were women teams uh, but a pro league was the next level most of society at the time saw women's place in the home and certainly not on the baseball field most people including leading doctors at the time 
just lacked basic knowledge of women and had crazy theories like women only had a certain amount of energy and if they used it all up on things like sports, they wouldn't have the energy to do things they were supposed to do like cook and make babies. (laughs) What? They were like, wow, you, if you play too much baseball, you'll just, you won't be able to have a child. <laughs> how are you going to have healthy children if you waste all that uh, energy? All that energy. So they saw women as like batteries that just like were like, no, you're running out of energy. You should just stop. There's no way to get more. Ob- objects. <laughs> objects. Yes, objects. That's probably the word. So. Getting into the next part, so women were treated like second-class citizens because, well, they were. The 19th Amendment was passed in 1920, but at the start of World War II, a handful of states, such as Maryland, Virginia, and basically the whole South, still hadn't ratified the amendment that ensured no one could be denied their vote based on sex. So... What what year was that? The 20s? The 20s? 1920 or 1919 slash like 1920, the 19th Amendment was passed right. that guaranteed that. Yeah. But there were still like a handful of states that were like, nah. In the 40s. <laughs> yes. Wild fact, Mississippi didn't ratify that amendment to the Constitution for 64 years. <laughs> they didn't ratify uh, it until 1984. Mississippi? Mississippi. So you could, you, you would, you could file a lawsuit in Mississippi and 1983 being like this person wouldn't let me vote because i'm a woman and they'd be like sorry well <laughs> it's not been ratified yet son yeah <laughs> so world war world war two or sorry world war one had helped push women's right rights and general uh to like the forefront right right uh because women were all of a sudden men needed women to like make do all the jobs they were, like, that they were doing yeah. while they were away at war yeah, yeah. measuring, so their, measuring like, their dicks against each other Exactly, exactly. So they generally seeing them as human uh, began uh, after they needed them. And they started uh, basically the suffrage movement, which had been around for decades at the time. But they finally got a lot more attraction during World War One, and they were able to get the, the 19th Amendment uh, to vote. And now World War II would do the exact same thing with women in the workplace and in society in general. So basically when we need them all of a sudden we're progressive <laughs> that's that's how things go um, in a, in most senses yeah 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 exactly so women all of a sudden world war ii starts we have the same problem we have a shortage of men they start working jobs that they wouldn't normally work before the league would show women could play sports the same as any men and more importantly they'd actually pay them almost as good as any man uh they would prove that women's sports are just as intense and entertaining as anything else, but also more importantly show that women can play a game and still act like proper ladies. That's really important. important. Yeah. At the time, (laughs) extremely important, apparently. So Vern Hernland, (laughs) which is a weird name, Vern Hernland, as a supervisor of recreation for the Chicago Parks Department, worked with Ken Sells, the president of the league, to write the new set of rules for the league. Why, making did, the, the, why, men, did, why did the parks director of Chicago <laughs> do that? <laughs> I don't know. He was just tasked with a job. Wrigley was like, you, just, just you work with Ken and make these rules. So, <laughs> But the parks director? 
I don't know. Like I don't understand it. Wrigley was crazy. I why mean, did they maybe... need a set of rules? Did I don't they... know. <laughs> anyway. Well, this is the thing. They're making the hybrid. Remember, it's not softball, but it's not baseball. So right, they made right. the mound 40 feet away instead of 35 feet, which was softball regulation. Okay. They also made the base pass 65 feet instead of the regular 55 feet in softball. The women would play uh, with nine members, just like the major leagues, instead of 10, which is pretty regular even to this day in softball, mm-hmm. and, and uh, would use MLB rules on the base pass, allowing for leadoffs and stolen bases. So they're like, all right, so we make it a, it's not, it's not quite the same. Yeah. So at this what point, size ball, definitely, what size ball are they using? They're using a regulation softball still at this time. Okay. Overhand or underhand pitch? That I'm getting to that. Okay, buddy. So at this point, we should definitely address uh, a league of their own. So a league of their own is a movie that I'm assuming you've watched if you've if you're listening to this podcast because right. we're definitely not step one into you becoming a fan of baseball or baseball <laughs> yeah. history. <laughs> um, so I, I, I mean, thank you, you thank movie, you. If we are, but uh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty weird. Uh, if you haven't seen a league of their own, see a league of their own, not just uh, for Gina Davis and Tom Hanks at like their peaks, um, but like it's just a good movie. It's a pretty good movie. Madonna, I watched her, Madonna at her peak too. Yeah, Rosie O'Donnell when she was on the rise. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, it, it, it's pretty. I, I watched it recently. I like very recently, like last week. And uh, it's a pretty solid movie and it's a good baseball movie. It's got a, got a, there's there's a little bit of tearjerker stuff when the, when Rose or not. Oh, who is it? The one that the, 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 I don't remember the actress's name, but either way, when she leaves town and her dad's like, be proud, like keep going. Don't worry about me. I was like, fuck yeah, just follow your dream, play baseball. (laughs) Um, I haven't seen that since I was but a young lad. So I'm going to have to watch that again. You are, you are. Uh, So a film, uh, the film takes place in 1943, but there is a big issue with the League of Their Own. It gets a lot right, which you'll notice as we move forward, but there's a huge part that's wrong because in 1943, the League used regulation softballs and underhand pitching. So underhand, they're windmilling it still at this point. Okay. As the years progressed, the ball got smaller and by 1946, pitchers could deliver the ball sidearm, and finally in 1948, overhand. We'll get more into this as uh, probably in part two. Uh, we definitely, uh, we will definitely dig into the film more. So, like part two, we're gonna get more into uh, the the rule changes and and everything that took place later on in the league. And you have to go and watch the movie. Like, find the movie, watch it, Edzy, okay. <laughs> and two. But but you'll you'll just be so much more uh, I don't even know informed or whatever. But it's definitely uh, definitely worth it in between part one and part two. So that's the end of it. We're no longer talking about a league of our own in this part. <laughs> okay. Don't even fucking bring it up. We'll talk about it next time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. Understood. Uh, in the league's inaugural year, four teams were formed. At first, Wrigley took the the idea to other MLB owners saying they could use the big league field while the team was on the road, but his idea fell flat. Instead, the teams ended up being in Racine and Kenosha, Wisconsin, Rockford, Illinois, and South Bend, Indiana, with Wrigley paying half of the operating costs and the team paying the other half. Teams would have 15 players, a coach, a business manager, and of course, a female chaperone. <laughs> 
Very important. Okay. Yeah, right. you had to have a lady to make sure the ladies stayed in line. Uh, right. So with with the logistics in place they needed, Wrigley used his Cub Scouts to spread the word across the land uh, about the new league. And Jim Hamilton, a 30-year player, manager, and owner, uh, and Chicago Cubs scout, was hired as head of procurement to locate and sign women from all over the United States and Canada. Uh, white women from across the U.S. and Canada began trying out and to be scouted. And I say white women because, as we know from the Mamie Johnson episode, yeah. this league was segregated even after the MLB was not not segregated anymore. So MLB in 1943 still segregated. This league definitely segregated and will continue to be to until its end. Um, so those who made the initial re uh, cut reported to Wrigley Field for spring training on May 17th, 1943. Around 300 women made it to the tryout with only 60 spots available. Mm. These women were the I cream did. of the crop. Yeah, so you got 300 women showing up and you got maybe, yeah, well, one-fifth of them are going to make the team. So it's really, really intense tryouts. Obviously, everybody's really gunning for it. If you've made it this far, you're already probably pretty good. So you got to be top 60 out of 300. Right. Uh, these, these women were cream of the crop, uh, some of whom never played organized baseball, but instead grew up playing with local boys until they were forced to stop. Luis Youngen, a former catcher and outfielder, said... The boys came down to my house and they told me they didn't want me on the team anymore because the other town's teams and kids were laughing at us because we had a girl on the team. It took them about a week before they came trudging back down and asked me to join them again because they had lost two games. So as I say, not all these girls were coming from softball. Some of these girls just played baseball growing up right. and they were good. Mm -hmm. uh, Dolly Nemiak, uh, I hope I'm saying that right, Dolly. Dolly Nemiak, a five-season veteran infielder, said, "I know nothing about girls playing. I knew nothing about girls playing baseball. I thought I was the only one in the whole wide world that played baseball. Of course, with the boys. One morning, my father was reading the Sunday paper and called me into the other room. Dolly said, "There's tryouts this afternoon for girls baseball." Dolly had never even considered the fact that such a thing existed. So, these are some stories. Uh, the quotes from these. Um, I'll just throw it out there right now. All the quotes that I'm using uh, for this episode is uh, from the, the fantastic book, uh, The Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League uh, by Anna by Annika Orock. Uh, it's awesome. I got it for Christmas. Mm -hmm. Such a good book. Uh, everybody check it out. Uh, obviously, I've used lots of sources to get this material, but this book was, was absolutely fantastic. The quotes in it are amazing. Um, the competition was intense. Not only were these women fighting for a spot, but also they were fighting to get paid. The lowest salary was $45 a week. The highest was $85. In today's dollars, that's about between about $700 to about $1,200 a mm -hmm. week. Mm -hmm. um, but at the time, you know, that's way more than any secretary gets. That's way more than any factory girl gets. That's way more than any, any you know, war job that they could get pays. It's right. like almost like double probably too. It wasn't MLB it's the cream of the crop of jobs. Yeah. It wasn't MLB money, but it was very similar to the pay for the highest levels of the minor leagues. Mm -hmm. So pretty good. Um, 
This was an opportunity not many could pass up, even though society frowned upon young women leaving home for anything other than marriage. Parents and husbands had much to say, and I'm sure even stopped women from participating at the time. Grace Pescula of of the Rockford Peaches said that she had her softball coach uh, intervene when her mother forbid her from going. The coach asked her mother if... uh, the coach she was basically like coach my mom won't let me go try out and the coach was like hey where else could she earn that amount of money and her mom was like yeah i guess <laughs> so, you going to play the baseball behind my back <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly she figured it out um so yeah great so, so she sent coach klein to yeah yeah okay he convinced her by being like, look, she's not going to make this amount of money anywhere. And I think she has a real chance. He was to like, make this look, I money. got Roy Orbison tattooed on my ass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I didn't think the water boy would come. On. <laughs> <That's>, yeah. <laughs> the tryouts were intense. We already talked about that. Obviously there's lots of competition. Uh, the women were scrutinized on the field and had to show skills in every aspect of the game. So they were really tested, obviously. You're looking for ball players. Only the best of the best made it. Those who were signed not only had to be highly skilled players, but they also had to comply with high moral standards and rules of conduct imposed by the league. Of course they So did. this is where we this is where we get things like things get like really fucking ridiculous and just like jaw dropping for somebody born uh, or just living in this century. I wasn't born in this century. Yeah, um, yeah. Although players were chosen for their skills on the field, femininity, femininity was a high priority. Wrigley contracted, or contra- yeah, Wrigley contracted Helena Rubinstein's beauty salon to meet with players at spring training. So they're like, girls, you're going to go on the field, you're going to get dirty, and then you're going to the beauty salon after because you got to look like women. So after practices each day, the women would attend Rubenstein's charm school and in the evening, teaching them proper ladylike etiquette for every situation in an effort to make them. So did the team pay for them to get like, Oh yeah. Freshened up after. Well, well they had to go to like, it was like school to be like a lady. Right. Like it was like my fair lady. Like a lot of these women were coming from small towns or farms or, or, you know, uh, Canada. <laughs> um, so they were just, <laughs> Back they, they were Canada. yeah, exactly. Oh, you'll find out. Um, uh, so they were, they wanted, but they wanted to make them as attractive as possible because they were like, nobody's going to accept girls playing baseball, but if they're hot, <laughs> that's, it's yeah. fucked up. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so in an effort to make each player as physically attractive as possible, each player received a beauty kit and instructions on how to use it. In fact, the number one rule of the league stated, players should always appear in feminine attire when not actively engaged in playing ball. Uh, okay. So, so they were very, very strict on this. Uh, this regulation so it's continues. Not just, it's now not just societal pressure. It's now like a stipulation of your job. Yeah, you definitely go. Oh, you'll hear. You'll hear about it. Like, oh my god. Oh, don't and get me just started. Like, you got, Sean says you. You gotta look like a woman, or else you're out. 
uh, and their definition of a woman, obviously like just, just, I'm not getting into that. Um, this is the very, very conservative 1940, uh, definition. Uh, this regulation, uh, continues through the playoffs for all, even though, even if your team's not participating. So they expect you to do this, even if your team's not in it at the playoffs at no time, may a player appear in the stands in her uniform or wear slacks or shorts in public. That's the rule. Ever. Ever. Shorts you or can't slacks wear ever in public. You're done. You're out. You broke the cardinal rule of the league. Uh, <laughs> the, that's the, just like, so I'm just car- getting started. The cardinal here. sin is pants. Oh, dude. So you want to hear it? So I just have the rule book in front of me right here. Um, okay. So boyish bobs are not permissible. That's a and haircut. In general, you're, that's a haircut? Yes. Yeah, a bob, like a boyish bob, right. like a, I don't yeah, know yeah. how, yeah, yeah short hair short in haircut. general. Yeah, and boyish bobs are not permissible, and in general, your hair should be well-groomed at all times, with longer hairs, preferably to short hair curls. Like So they're like, yeah, like straight hair, they're even discriminating against curls, apparently. Lipstick should always be on. This is in the rule book, the official rule book of the league. Smoking or drinking is not permissible in public places. Liquor drinking will not be permissible under any circumstances. Wait, wait, hold, t- on, hold on a second. Hold on a second. <laughs> yeah. So first they said no smoking or drinking in public. Yeah. Right? And no liquor drinking at all. I think they mean like you can have a beer or a wine every once in a while. Okay, okay, hold on. Yeah. So, okay, carry on. I, was so mis- I, mis- liquor, right? I misinterpreted that for a second. All, right, all other social engagements must be approved by the chaperone. So the chaperone that they have has to improve of any social engagement. Legitimate requests for dates can be allowed by chaperone. So they're like, you can see men, but this woman that you don't know has to (laughs) approve of it. You're RA. So it's like they're in college. Your resident advisor has to approve your visitor. Yeah. Yeah, this is a shitty oppressive college rule. So players would not be allowed to drive their cars past past their city limits without special permission of the manager. So I, at this point, women don't really drive anyways, like just talking historically. Um, so that's a little bit of a weird rule, but you weren't allowed to leave the city without the permission of your manager. So some random man gets to decide if you can leave the town or not. You play for um, us now and don't leave town. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Each team would travel as a unit via method traveled provided by the league. So you couldn't, travel on your own either you had to travel with the team um the baseball uniform skirts shall not be shorter than six inches above the kneecap that's right skirts right so as you will no recall, shorts and no pants but here's some skirts here's some skirts right uh, so, so they're playing of course they're playing in skirts so once again, if you've seen League of Your Own, I know I'm breaking my own rule right now. Yeah. League of Their Own. Uh, you, you may remember the scene uh, where the skirted uniforms get out or come like they the crowd first sees the uniforms, the players, and they're just like, ah, shit. Um, it is absolutely what happened. Everyone was like, what? Like, why would we play in skirts? That's the dumbest thing in the whole wide world. We have to slide and dive uh, and wearing a skirt just doesn't make sense yeah, and is. obviously so it, who do you think came up with the skirts a woman <laughs> <laughs> was it wrigley 
Uh, kinda. So Wrigley assigned art director Otis Shepard with the task of designing the uniform and look. Okay. So Otis Shepard, some random design guy, was just like, they'll play in skirts. It'll be great. They're ladies. Uh, he That's did. what they like to wear. And he was like, I looked at figure skating and field hockey attire and was like, that's what they should wear to play baseball. These are the other sports that women play, and this is what and, we wear, so it must okay. it that's that must be the way. <laughs> exactly. So let's not think about ergonomics did, in any sort of fashion. So he collaborated with, with Wrigley's wife Helen on the idea. Right. Uh, I don't know why Helen had any authority on the matter, but they were, he was like, yeah, you can design stuff. Well, he's, he, she's, she's Wrigley's wife, and assuming <laughs> his wife is a woman, so... Exactly. So she knows what all women want and That's need right. while playing baseball. She's rich. Uh, they, did, they did consult softball star Ann Harnett, uh, who was uh, one of the original to... to try it on and show it off to everybody because she was a big softball star at the time. Okay. Um, so Ken Sells told the Cincinnati Inquirer on May 17th, 1943, no pants wearing, tough-talking female softballer will play on any of our four teams. So basically lesbians. He was being discriminatory towards lesbians. What? Um, yeah. They were really, really obsessed with this idea that if this league was going to be successful, all the women had to look like Betty Boop. So it's fucked up. Yeah. But basically, they, we'll get into it in this part two, too, the whole like history of, of, of anti-gay homophobia from this league. Because, I mean, obviously some of these women were gay and some of these women dressed the way they wanted to dress, even at the time. Right. And, uh they were discriminated against for that. Uh, there's a little bit of that in the league there, but they really, they really don't actually have like a, an openly gay character or, or, or really dive into the, right. the history of it. It's a little more whitewashed were, version. Yeah, yeah. So obviously no pants meant there was no protection for slides. Uh, the uniforms were attractive, but it wasn't attractive was welts and raspberries that they'd get all over their legs from sliding in goddamn skirts. So <laughs> I, the uniforms caused issues beyond exposing the players' legs to the rough dirt. In actuality, it would get in the way of making some plays. Luis Youngin spoke of adjusting the uniform when no one was looking uh, so she could feel ground balls properly. So she was just like, it sucked fielding ground balls because the skirt would get in the way of getting your glove down. So you'd have to like hike it up even more to make it comfortable for you to be able to like field ground balls, which right. is ridiculous. Right. It's just ergonomically a nightmare. It's, it's, it's absolutely, as I say, a bunch of men got together and decided, but they, but they look, they look like women. Well, they're wearing skirts. So yeah. of course, and that's what's really important. At this time, you know, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Screw, screw the war effort. Like we gotta, we gotta make sure these women. So we gotta make sure the girls look like girls. Yeah, when yeah, they're they playing, when themselves. they're playing, a, when they're playing a man's game. Yeah, it's terrible. So the players were as time. tough as any male counterpart, obviously. Right. Um, so as stated in a Morris Markey article in McCall's magazine in September 1950, entitled "Hey, ma'am, you're out." <laughs> he wrote very few players suffer undue disturbance at the monthly period and many play the whole season without missing a game oh my god oh god 
They play all out. They get hurt in collisions. They have pulled muscles and Charlie horses and, and spike cuts and bruises. But it's rare thing for a girl to whimper over in her over her pain or asked to be taken out of the game so jesus christ i was forgot about that quote right there <laughs> <What> a... <laughs> it's uh it's just like it's fine their periods are fine you don't need to worry about it i know that's immediately what you thought about when i told you women were playing baseball but it's cool <laughs> <laughs> it's oh it's you yeah. should see so, how amazing it is that they play through this injury every single month <laughs> it's awful that's what he's saying awful. no I know, I know, and it's terrible. It's terrible. So obviously women are as tough as men, sometimes even more tough. Definitely most of the time. Absolutely. Uh, uh, I'm a big (laughs) baby. Yeah, so I just want to talk about real baseball and not the stupidness anymore. Um, But they seem to be a lot more concerned about how it looked and they pushed it so hard on all the players. The Charm School guide was issued to every player along with the beauty kit. The guiding kit provided women with tools and guidance for beauty routines, clothing, and etiquette. Beauty routines, clothing, and etiquette. So there was just like, this is the most important part. Screw a fielding guide. Just do this. <laughs> yeah, so some, yeah. of the, some, of, some of the texts include... We you already scouted you, so... <laughs> you have certain responsibilities because you are in the limelight. Your actions and appearance on and off the field reflect the whole profession. It is not only your duty to do your best to uphold the standard of this profession, but do your best to keep others in line. So they were just like, yeah, you got to be this and you got to be hard on your teammate if anybody wants to do anything stupid. Uh, And by stupid, wear shorts. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, The players were forced to wear lipstick every day and all the time, even during games. A Sporting Life article from 1951, the home team begins to rush from the dugout. But wait! They stop short. It seems the right fielder hasn't applied lipstick yet, or hasn't finished applying lipstick, and that's a rule. What? So, yeah. Like, they were like, oh, so they take were, the field. So they were running out there, and then they stopped because the one woman had well, not... you had to, you would get fined if you didn't wear lipstick on the field holy shit yeah so the league cared very deeply about keeping women feminine and in true true patriarchal fashion patriarchal fashion the league figured they needed some no- notable men to draw interest it was believed that by acquiring notable men sports figures as managers for the girls teams they would get greater curiosity uh, and interest from the public. The first managers were Johnny Gottslig, a hockey player that played for the Blackhawks. Bert Neerhoff. (laughs) Why that that guy? Uh, (laughs) I don't know. Well, he he was apparently very vital in, in, uh, in recruiting Canadians to the league. What does Um, that have to do with how fucking good he was at being a baseball manager? He was a fucking hockey player. He was a hockey player. I don't know. Apparently, he knew his shit. But was yeah, he even the, the manager point. in the Chicago area? Yeah, well, he played for the Blackhawks. Yeah, for at all the these time? teams in the Midwest. All, yeah, at kinda, the same fucking kinda. time. So, it so was he's the play- tail end of his career. So, it was like really the last couple. So he's years playing of his for career, the Blackhawks right? in the winter. Yeah, and then yeah. and then the Blackhawks t- traditionally weren't very good. So. So I guess they'd be done by April and then he'd go and, and yeah, exactly. Exactly. Why, why are you questioning it? Of course they just, it makes, 
because it's insane. Okay. That's why. Well, the other the other three managers were a little bit more uh, more acquainted with the game, if you could say. Bert Nierhoff, former Major League Baseball player and minor league manager. Josh Billings, former Major League Baseball player, and Eddie Stumpf, uh, former Milwaukee Brewers catcher. So your Brewers catcher, whatever the team was called in Milwaukee at the time, the Braves, Braves probably. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, that that was so there you got a hockey player and three uh baseball veterans i guess you could say but that was the thing uh, you will get into the some of the three veterans and a hockey game. player walk into a yeah. baseball league <laughs> <laughs> it's full of women so we need them if anybody's going to show up apparently <laughs> fuck this is awful um so i think we so i think we've, we've literally covered all the ridiculousness uh there's probably more actually there's more coming really soon um but in 1943 the league actually played baseball okay. um so each team would play 108 games four player four four team league 108 games wow. a lot of yeah uh the season would be divided into two halves of 54 games with the first half champion facing the second half champion uh, in a playoff series, best of five for the playoff championship. League championship, however, would be determined by who won the most games total in the season, which is kind of fucked up. I don't even want to get into it. There's there's some discretions on the, the official league stats that I've seen that I'm like, that doesn't make sense. But regardless, doesn't matter. Uh, the league wanted teams to be as balanced as possible, so they would actually regularly trade women throughout the season to keep all the league, all the teams competitive. So there's two halves. They're like, Oh, if your team sucked in the second half, maybe we'll send this player. Who's really good from the good team to your fourth place team. So it's kind of weird and arbitrary at first. Uh, the first game was held on May 30th, 1943 South Bend faced off uh, against Rockford and Kenosha played in Ra- uh, Racine. On July 1st of that year, uh, the league held an all-star game at Wrigley Field, which was actually the first ever night game to be played at Wrigley, uh, which wouldn't have lights installed until the 1980s. So they actually right. like followed the president's advice, and they were like, yeah, we'll just get some lights, and we'll do this big thing at Wrigley. So they did an all-star game on July 1st, which is also kind of weird because they'd only been playing for like a month at that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're like, yeah, the all-star. Um, uh <laughs> The Racine Bells won the first half uh, of the year with a record of 34 and 20. Kenosha Comets had a strong second half going 33 and 21 uh, to win the second half. And the Kenosha Comets won the league championship, which just as I say, don't get me into it. Uh, Kenosha and Racine met in the playoffs and the Bells swept the Comets in five game playoff series to be the first league champions, uh, playoff champions. So that's the first year, four teams, Everything goes well. In fact, it goes better than they expected. Uh, some of the best players in the league uh, and for Racine were Canadians. Racine's coach was NHL player Johnny Gottselig yeah. that we've already talked about. Uh, he played a big part in recruiting talent from Canada, and the Canadians shined in their first season. Uh, Gladys Terry Davis from Toronto was the 1943 batting champ. Uh, in just under 350 at bats, she had 116 hits, good for a 332 average, along with 21 extra base hits and 53 stolen bases. So pretty solid year, high average, uh, won the batting championship. The pitcher leader was Helen Nikki Fox from Ardley, Alberta. She was a true ace on the mound, compiling a record of 31 and eight with an ERA of 1.81. So that's, that's pretty, pretty darn good. good. Yeah, yeah. So, weirdly enough, this Midwestern League in the United States, 
uh, the the batting champ and the ERA champ are, are both from Canada in the first year. As I say, a lot of the a lot of that has to do with this Johnny Gottsilig guy because apparently he 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 was essentially though they were like Johnny, tell all the Canadians that we got a baseball league going, and he right. was like okay, and then they were like you're a manager, and he was like okay, so okay, it's so, the off season, so yeah. <laughs> Well, obviously, I mean, it's clear that he obviously, uh, you know, I, I guess I underestimated his baseball knowledge because clearly he's, uh, he's a good scout. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't know how much of the scouting he did personally, but as I, he was he was semi-famous Midwestern guy at the time and got put in charge. So he had just kind of like told everyone in Canada, he was like, send your women like <laughs> if they're good at baseball <laughs> um so the league had succeeded more than anyone had expected it attracted 176,612 fans uh which averages out to be about roughly 1600 a game uh for the entire year so not too bad 1600 that that's that's decent uh, especially at the time uh many baseball executives and press were amazed at the success of the league and the support it was receiving locally Women were starting to have a new freedom in society and to get out of the house and work occupations that they never would have been allowed to work before the war. Also, the war with, war rate, with the war raging, supplies were limited and people couldn't travel as far. Gasoline was rationed and trips to the big city to see the Cubs or the Tigers were pretty much out of the question at this time. Like you couldn't get the gas to go into the big city if you wanted to. Uh-huh. So by putting these teams in these like smaller cities around like Chicago and and the big midwestern cities like Milwaukee and stuff they they were they were able to attract a, a local fan base and build a b- big crowd that way. Right. Um, Wrigley played to the nationalism at the time, beginning each game with the Star Spangled Banner. The two teams would form a V for victory from home plate down the first and third base lines. So yeah, they were just like, oh, we are patriotic. In 1944, the league expanded with the success of year one. Civics groups in each of the four cities agreed to finance their own franchises, allowing Wrigley to expand uh, the league, including now major league cities. The Milwaukee Chicks and the Minneapolis Millerets were added to the league. Uh, so they're in big league cities now. Um mm-hmm. 1944 was somewhat of the peak of the U.S. involvement in World War II. Shortly after the season began, it was announced that the landings at Normandy had taken place and the invasion of France had begun. So this is like, if if you know World War or World War II history, and Edzi, you know I'm a I'm a big history guy, especially for that. Casualty ratings. Like, obviously, people were dying before 1944 or June of 1944. But with the invasion of Normandy, uh, it just everything progressed. And so it was even more dire. More men were needed. Uh, People were dying. People were losing family and friends all the time. Um, So days after the invasion, uh, Milwaukee catcher Dorothy Mickey McGuire received a phone call from her mother, letting her know her husband, Tom, had been killed in action. Oh. McGuire was known as a tough as nails catcher and wouldn't give an inch at the plate to oncoming base runners. Her resilience and toughness really showed that day because she didn't tell anybody. She suited up and didn't tell anybody until she had gone into the clubhouse after the game. Months later, there's a happy ending. Oh my God, there's a happy ending. She, she yeah. received a letter from Tom. He was alive and recovering in a hospital in Italy and simply had been misidentified at first. Oh, thank God. Well, too bad yeah, for well, that, that other just, guy, but... Yeah, 
<laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah, as I say, this is like really peak. Uh, so th- the league's success continued, um, but their ridiculous homophobic, uh, tyrannical rules uh, that essentially stated play like a man but look like a lady continued. An outfielder, Josephine Jojo D'Angelo, who was cut from the South Bend Blue Sox in the middle of the season. A league executive approached her in the team's hotel lobby and told her to pack her bags. Can you guess her transgression? Well, it's not going to be something good. I know that. Uh, in her own words, the executive told her that she had a butchy haircut. Oh, I, I figured it was something in that realm. Was yeah. her, her hair was too short? Her hair was too short, I guess. Yeah, it was short and curly. So they were like, fuck you. You look like a lesbian. Like, <laughs> literally. They, were, they, they fired her from her contract. Uh, it uh, is like, it, yeah. Yeah, no, it was awful. It was awful. It was absolutely awful what they did to her. Um, the Milwaukee Chicks went on to win the league uh, in 1944. The expansion wasn't as big a success as Wrigley hoped. In larger cities, people had more choices of entertainment. And the women playing in the big league size parks caused less excitement and magnified the difference between the men's and women's baseball game. So, like, they're playing in, like, big league stadiums, but yeah. they're playing with shorter mounds and shorter base paths, and you can just see it's different, right? Yeah. So, Wrigley lost interest, essentially, during the 1944 season once it was clear that the MLB would not be interrupted by the war effort. Wrigley sold the league to his Chicago advertising executive, Arthur Mayerhoff, uh, it was under Mayerhoff that the expansion and publicity of the league reached its peak. Mayerhoff started making changes, moving the big city teams to quainter settings. The Milwaukee Chicks moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan, and Minneapolis moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and became the Daisies. So now we got the Grand Rapids Chicks and the Fort Wayne Daisies instead. Okay. That's a, the, da- the Daisies is, is a better name than the Millerettes. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I mean, it's the women, it's it's pretty. It's the women didn't like it. <laughs> I was gonna say it's kind of a you know. Yeah, I, get, uh, so, I see what they're trying to get at by calling them the daisies or whatever, but they're trying to make it more effeminate, which is stupid. Yeah, but exactly, uh, uh, exactly. But what's a Millerette like? Well, the one team, like the the team, is the Peaches too. Like they're they're all kind of like. And the Blue Sox is probably the least effeminate of the name, although I'm sure it probably has some sort of connotation at the time. Mm-hmm. Like um, why why do they gotta be the Millerettes? Why can't they just be the Millers? Yeah, exactly. Well, exactly. But we're we're eighty years later. We digress. Um, so yeah, spring training. Uh, so Mayerhoff started an ad campaign to grow the league. He was smart, and he actually cared. Unlike Wrigley, who just saw it as like an opportunity in case baseball was canceled. Mm-hmm. Um, spring training in 1945 took place at various Army training camps. The war was still going at the time, although it was really winding down with Germany. Um, the league played exhibition games uh, for outgoing and wounded servicemen. The women were encouraged to write letters to soldiers and visiting hospitals. Uh, like vets and hospitals and stuff like that. Uh, basically, uh, because of this, many soldiers and veterans became big fans of the league. And this was a time when many of them were actually like going home from the service too. Over the next like two or three years, they'd go home and they'd be like, hey, I remember watching that women's baseball game. That was pretty awesome. Like, let's go check that out. 
Um, so this was a great way of advertising the league and, and really spread it out, especially for people that were going to come home and, and talk about what they saw. Mm-hmm. Um, the war wound down during 1945 season and the men returned home to the factories, replenishing the minor league rosters. And many thought it would be the end of the league, but attendance doubled, uh, to, 450,313 in 1945. So we went from, you know, 170,000 some in 43, two years later, we're at 450,000. So lots of people are coming and Mayerhoff seems to be doing a good job. Right. The All-American girls were inspiring young women and boys everywhere. Several teams started supporting local boys baseball clubs and instituted junior girls baseball leagues. Uh, So they're spreading the word of the game. They're creating leagues for girls. Everything's good. The press had focused primarily on the novelty and femininity of the league, now started actually taking the league seriously. Local sports writers wrote detailed summaries of the games alongside box scores and rarely commented on their women's appearance. Eventually, the games would even get broadcast on the radio. LaVon Pepper Perry put it best. We had to get out there and prove. We had to get out there and prove wearing dresses and a name like the Fort Wayne Daisies that you could still play baseball. It wasn't easy, but we did it. People may have come out at first time, the first time, just for laughs and see the legs, but they kept coming back, and that was because we played good baseball. And that's part one. And that's part one. That's, That's part one on the All-American gr- prof- Girls Professional Baseball League. That's, uh, um, that's an interesting story. I mean, like you, like you touched upon before, like one of us was going to do that eventually. But, uh, yeah, and I'm not really surprised at uh, the patriarchal bullshit that went on with the league. But I, I didn't know I didn't know about it really that it was so uh so bad that like they kind of had uh i mean i don't want to compare it in the same way to like the brush classification system of like the players back in like the 1880s of like the men's uh yeah at the professional level because uh, you know they weren't given like a handbook and like shown how to uh to work and it wasn't like dependent on their salaries or whatever. But uh, yeah, I, I didn't realize that there was like kind of a, a code of conduct that they were expected to, to follow. Yeah. And they were fined. It was like, they, there's lots of talk about, about, you know, it was $5 the first time, $10 the second time, and then you're just done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, and in some cases, as we heard about, sometimes a league executive would be like, hey, you look like a lesbian, go home. <laughs> so, like, that was insane. just, yeah. And it ruined, like, and some of these girls were gay, right? And they, you yeah. know, it was, yeah. it, it was, it was a whole thing. AJ, we're going to get way more into that. Uh, a little bit into the next part. So the next part we're really going to focus, the league is, is, is flying high. So what happens, what happens, where did it go? Uh, the legacy of the league, as well as uh, that, that famous movie we, we touched upon very briefly as well. And, uh, and the, what that did for the league as well. So uh, this was fun. I, I say I, we're going to do a part two uh, look for it. I hope next week. Uh, but yeah, in the meantime, the, uh, Spring training's almost here. Oh my yep. god, it's yep. wild. <laughs> okay, so follow us on Twitter at Doing Baseball and check us out on Instagram for some 
daily baseball history content at doing.baseball. And, of course, uh, encourage your friends to find us on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever platform you're on. Uh, thank you for listening to us, and until next time. I'm Sean. And I'm Eds. And we were doing baseball. Uh, this was fun. Uh, check out that book again, uh, Incredible Women of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League by Annika Oruk. It's amazing, amazing illustrations and quotes. Yes, I will. I want to borrow it from you. Okay, bye. <laughs> bye. Bye.